Hey family, this is Josh Eggerson. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Faith Restored podcast. Faith Restored is a local church with a global mission to reach the lost and teach the found. And it's our hope that the word you're about to hear today encourages you, inspires you, and builds your faith. If you'd like to learn more about Faith Restored, you can visit us on our website at faithrestored.church. Now let's go live into this week's message. While you're standing, would you grab your Bibles or your electronic devices and go with me? Uh, used to be able to say turn with me in church, but people don't bring paper Bibles to church no more, Brother Henry. They use their cell phones, so I got to say go. However you get there, if it's by turning or by scrolling, uh, go with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. And I'm going to begin reading at verse number one. Luke, chapter 15. I'm going to begin reading at verse... Number one, when you have it, won't you say, I've got it. Amen. If you don't have a Bible, we brought one to you. It's on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, now all the tax collectors and sinners, everybody say sinners, were coming near to him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred, everybody say a hundred, a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. I have found my sheep which was lost. Verse 7 says, I tell you in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 4 again says, what man among you if he has 100 sheep, everybody say 100, and has lost one, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Amen. I want to preach for a little while using as a subject the God who can't wait. The God who can't wait. Amen. Father, thank you for this time. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. The God who can't wait. I didn't mean for it to happen, Brother Herman, but it happened anyway. I wasn't trying for it to happen, wasn't intending for it to happen, but still, against my wishes and my best intentions, it happened anyhow. I had begged my father to take me to the store so that I could spend the little money that friends and family had given me for my birthday. I was a child, and because I was a child, I wanted to go to the mall and go to the store, but I didn't want to go to Macy's, didn't want to go to Nordstrom, didn't even want to go to JCPenney. I wanted my dad to take me to the Crossroads Mall in Omaha, Nebraska, and take me to the everything for a dollar store. Because it was there, I knew that I could get the best bang for my buck. And so I begged my father, freshly home from revival, tired, 
after preaching seven nights because back then people liked church. You know, they didn't do two night or one night revivals. They would bring a preacher in for seven days. And my father had done one of those seven day stretches, seven night stretches of preaching. He had caught a flight home and he picked me up and when he picked me up from school, I knew he had just gotten back from the airport because his suitcases were still in the back seat of our minivan. And I asked my dad, Daddy, you promised that when you got home, you would take me to the store. Let me pause there parenthetically to remind you that be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Because I, too, have a son named Joshua. That frequently reminds me, Daddy, you promised no matter how tired I am, you promised you would take me to the store. And so I told my daddy that I wanted to go to the store, and he acquiesced. He took me to the store, and as we were walking joyfully together into the Crossroads Mall, I was skipping. I was happy. But then I looked up because at one moment I was walking with my father, and then the next moment I was by myself. Because against my best intentions, I had wandered off. And many of us, whether we want to admit it or not, in the sanctuary today, know what it's like to wander away from our Father. Because the turmoil, the trial, and the tribulation of life have a way of making us lose our way while we're walking with God. And the interesting thing about wandering off is it's easy to wander off, but it's hard to find your way back home. Y'all ain't going to say nothing to me, but the reality of our lives is it's easy to get into a habit where you're not praying like you used to. It's easy to get to a place where you're not attending worship like you used to. It's easy to fall out of the rhythm of prayer and fasting and study of the word of God and tithing and being generous to the church of God with your finances. It's easy to get to that place, but it's hard for you to come out of that place and find your way home. And is there anybody here who can be honest and say life at times in your life has caused you to wander? Life at times, because of all the things you've got to handle, it might not even be anything crazy. It might not be even be anything uh, so severe as a death in the family or the loss of a relationship or the loss of income. You're just trying to maintain day-to-day -day life. And somehow while trying to do your best to handle the cares of life, you find yourself farther away from God and farther away from the fellowship with the saints than you would like to be. And the reality is simply this. God is calling each of us to understand that sometimes you will wander away from the will of God. It doesn't make you a bad person. It does not make you evil. It makes you human. It is in your nature to wander away from God even the songwriter said prone to wander Lord I feel it prone to leave the God I love so here's my heart Lord take and seal it seal it for thy courts above that song is almost a hundred years old and yet and still we find ourselves as believers wandering away from God and out of the place that we know we are supposed to be is there anybody here that can say you've lost your way at times in life you may not be lost right now. Uh, you may not be dealing with it right now. You might be in your spiritual place of centering. You might be in the place where you feel like you're supposed to be. But if you've lived long enough, if there have been enough sunrises and sun 
mindsets in your life. There have been seasons where you were not where you thought you should be when it came to your relationship with God. But even though life will cause us at times to wander away from God and to wander away from the will of God and to wander away from relationship with God, the beauty of our lives is that when we wander away from the will of God, God does not wait for us to get ourselves together to come back to him. But he will leave the sanctuary and come to where we are and find us and bring us back home. God, help me. And I don't know who I'm preaching to this morning, but there is somebody under the sound of my voice that can say, preacher, you're talking about me. Because the only reason why I'm here in the midst of a pandemic saved and in my right mind after all I've been through, it's not because I never wandered away. It's not because my spiritual GPS is working perfectly. There were actually times when I wandered away from the sheepfold of God, but God, the good shepherd, came and found me and brought me back to where I'm supposed to be. And is there anybody in the building on a Sunday morning that can testify that the reason you're here is not because you were good, but it's because he grabbed you. God, help me. I am here because God came to get me. I should have been dead. I should have been by myself. I should have been left alone. I should have been left out, but God decided in his mercy to not leave me to face the wrath and reward of my sins, the wrath and reward of my sins, but he grabbed me and brought me back into his house, and I'm saved now because he didn't wait for me to get myself together. He didn't wait for me. God, help me. I know Travis Green wrote a wonderful song that said he waited, but that's good singing and poor theology because the truth of the Bible is that God did not wait. Oh, God, when the world was in sin and earth was in trouble, God said, prepare for me a body. Oh, God, and he sent salvation down through the womb of a virgin girl named Mary because he couldn't wait for me to get myself together. Oh, God, you got to understand now theologically, oh, God could not wait on you because if you had the ability to get yourself together, he wouldn't have had to kill his son so you could go to heaven. But if you can't get yourself together, God says, I'll come down and I'll get you together all by myself. I don't need your help saving you. I don't need your help delivering you. I don't need your help. It's by grace through faith that you're saved. Lest any man should boast. Is there anybody here that can say I'm here because he did not wait. And in the midst of our confusion, our pain, our warfare, and our wandering, we serve a God that does not wait. Whether you know it or not, beloved, this is the message, the tone and tenor of our text. And it is here that we penetrate the periphery of this particular passage of Scripture because Jesus is teaching on the side of a mountain. He has just concluded, we are in Luke chapter 15, which means that he has just concluded Luke chapter 14. And in Luke chapter 14, Jesus gives us a talk, uh, a soliloquy. He gives them a sermon about the cost of discipleship. Uh, there are a bunch of people who are excited about this movement that Jesus has started. They're excited about uh, this thing that Jesus has started in Palestine. And they act as if they want to be a part of it. But while the crowds are following them, Jesus does something that will go against the rules of church growth as we teach them in the 21st century. Because in the 21st century, we teach preachers and church planters and pastors, Doc, if you got a good crowd, don't say anything to make them mad and leave you. 
Uh, uh, if you got a bunch of people following you, don't preach anything challenging. Preach everything that's happy. Uh, give them some candy and some ice cream. Don't feed them any spiritual vegetables. Don't make them uh, eat any meat. Uh, but give them the things that's going to keep them coming back. Because, Doc, you got some good, a good crowd. You have some good momentum. And you don't want to mess it up. But Jesus messes up his church's growth by giving them a hard word in Luke 14 that tells them, don't come following me if you have not counted the cost. Jesus tells them that there is a cost associated with following me. And I think that many of us, we start with how great life is following Jesus. And we use that to get people in the door. But then when they come in the door and they have to deal with warfare, they go back out of the door because no one told them that being saved was going to be like this. But that's because we give them salvation from tracks and not from the Bible. Because if we taught them salvation from the Bible, instead of trying to count decisions like a cheerleader at a pep rally, we would make them understand what Paul told the church in Philippians. Philippians, it has been appointed unto you by God not only to love him but to suffer for his sake. That following Jesus does not just mean that you're going to love him but you're going to have to deal with hardship for his sake. And Jesus tells them while you're following me there is going to be a cost associated with your discipleship. Oh, And the Bible says that he tells them Mark corroborates this same Lucan passage and Mark says it this way. He says when he told them this, many departed from him. God, help me. Oh, God, can I tell you, Brother Henry, that encourages me. Uh, because as a pastor, many have departed from me. And I thought that my leadership was all right. Sometimes I question myself. I wonder, am I doing the right thing? Am I going the right way? Did I do people right? But then when I read passages of scripture like this and see that Jesus was the best leader, he was the most qualified, the most anointed, and the most powerful. And he didn't just lose five or six. He lost thousands. Because people will love you when you're saying what they want to hear. But they will hate you when you change a word and challenge them. Because everybody wants to be lifted up, but no one wants to be humble. Jesus says, look, it's going to be hard following me. And Mark and the gospel writers corroborate that after Jesus says this, many people leave him. As a matter of fact, one of the gospel writers say that after this, Jesus turns to the disciples and says, will you leave too? But Peter says, Lord, where shall we go? Because only you have the words of eternal life. And that's why I'm glad that you'll have a bunch of folk to leave you, but God will keep some Peters in the building. God, help me. Uh, God will keep some Peters in your life that will understand, look, they might be pissed off with you, but there's an anointing on your life. And we're going to stay here because since we've been here, we've been blessed. Where are we going to go and get a word like this? Where are we going to go and get healed like this? Where are we going to go and be educated like this? I'm sticking with Jesus. Yeah, many leave him. But it's not the fact that people leave him that surprises me. What surprises me about the text is not who left, but who stayed. Because you can't allow the superimposed chapter divisions to make you uh, forget that the Bible is written as one long book. When it was originally written, there were no chapters. So chapter 15 is a continuation of what's happening in chapter 14. So this is not another day. This is the same day that the church people leave, 
But in, verse, in chapter 15, verse 1, the Bible says that the sinners stayed. Yeah. Church folk left. But the sinners stayed with Jesus. He tells church people that this is not going to be a praise break every Sunday meeting. This is not going to be a tell you what you want to hear kind of church. This is not going to be a ministry that lets you do what you want to do the way you want to do it all the time. He says, this is going to be hard. You're going to lose some relationships. You're going to lose some finances. You're going to be frustrated in following me at times. And the church people say, I don't want that. Let's go back to easy church. But the people who really needed salvation, the Bible says, are still with Jesus in verse number one. Why? Because they decided that no matter how hard salvation was, they'd rather struggle with Jesus than be at peace without him. God help me. Oh God, I told you this last week, but it bears repeating again. Be careful when you know you've disobeyed God and things start going right in your life. Be careful when you know that the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some and then you become flippant in your church attendance and you don't suffer any loss nobody gets sick nothing bad happens to you that is not a sign that you've made the right decision that's the sign that you've chosen to be at peace without Jesus than to struggle with Jesus God help me but is there anybody here God help me oh God my spiritual father would say a little bit with God is better than a whole lot without him and I don't know is there anybody here who can say I'd rather take trouble with Jesus than have still waters without him because stagnant waters get dirty and they can kill you but if I'm on the waves of life even if the waves of life are tossing the ship of my soul back and forth I got an anchor in Jesus that will step out on the deck of my boat and tell the storms of life peace be still. You might not have trouble without Jesus, but sooner or later, if you keep on living, you will get into trouble and you will need him. And the sinners decided, yes, it's going to be hard following Jesus, but I'm sticking around because my life is jacked up. I can't find the right relationships. My money is funny. I got mental health issues. I got a jacked up family tree. But if I get with Jesus, what he promises is better than life without him. The sinners decided that Jesus was worth it. And because they decided that Jesus was worth it, look here. The Bible says two interesting things. Number one, it says Jesus receives sinners. And then it says that Jesus eats with sinners. Somebody say receives. Somebody say eats. Yeah, he receives sinners. That means that he welcomes them in spite of their sin. Meaning that Jesus does not ask the sinners to change their behavior before he invites them to be with him. And if Jesus does not require a change in behavior to get you in his presence, then you should not require that people be perfect before they come into the presence of God. If Jesus says, I can take a sinner just as they are, I can take them filthy and jacked up and smelling like weed and with alcohol on their breath and with being with somebody that they wasn't married to the night before, I can take them just as they are. If Jesus being pure and holy and perfect can accept that, why can't you accept somebody the way that they are he he receives them just as they are doesn't ask them to change but he declares that if I love them they'll change I, they don't have to change for me to love them but if I love them my love will change them 
Some of you are in the building now as saved as you are. Not because God changed you first, but because he loved you into a change. God, help me. Uh, some of y'all are married now, not because you were lovable, but because somebody's love loved you into a change. I don't know who I'm preaching to, but God says, I'm receiving sinners. But not only does he receive sinners, God, help me, which is a sign of hospitality, but the Bible says he not only receives them, he eats with them. Yeah. Uh, to share a meal does not simply imply courtesy, but it implies a desire for intimacy. I'm not just welcoming you into the house. Sharing a meal with you means that I want to get to know you, that I want to have relationship with you. I want to get to know you intimately. I want to know your hopes and your dreams and, and your desires. I want to know your fears and, and your insecurities. I want to be able to walk you through the dark seasons of your life. And that's what makes the Pharisees upset because not only does he receive them, but he's eating with them, which means that he desires to have relationship with people who the law says he should not have relationship with. He is pursuing them in relationship and some of us need to shout because the reason why we're saved is because God has a holy habit of making comrades out of castaways by showing love to the least of these God help me let me say that again in case you want to tweet it God has a holy habit of making comrades out of castaways by showing love to the least of these. And that's my testimony. I can't tell on you. I'm going to tell my own business so y'all won't think I'm poking and making fun. Uh, I was the least of these. I, nobody in my family thought I was going to be a preacher. Nobody in my family thought that I was going to be saved. Nobody in my family thought that I was going to do the things that I would do. My parents just wanted me to be saved. My parents didn't want me to get arrested anymore. My parents wanted me to graduate on time. Nobody thought that the Lord would make me a preacher or a pastor or a bishop. As a matter of fact, I tell this story and people laugh, but it really ain't funny. It's the story of my life. Uh, I would be in church and I'd be playing the organ and, and, and the prophets would come. My dad would bring people to church and they'd prophesy and they, you know, everybody got to prophesy for the pastor's family. The pastor got kids, you know. And that make them real deep. They got to prophesy for the pastor's family. And, 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 and my, my wife was a PK. We know the deal. Matter of fact, my wife is so scarred uh, by jacked up people prophesying uh, over her that if you prophesy to her right now, if you lay hands on her, she might feel the glory but she ain't gonna fall because we so used to people laying hands on us and pushing us over trying to make themselves look deep because I know the preacher's kids gonna know to fall I know I'm, I'm gonna lay hands on them they're gonna fall out so anyway I was playing the organ Brandon they were prophesying to my oldest sister they prophesied ministry over her life said she was gonna be a fireball and an evangelist and a pastor prophesied over my second oldest sister said oh my gosh she's a worship leader she has a beautiful voice she's gonna be a singer she's gonna be called to the nation they prophesied to my little sister skipped over me prophesied to my little sister says she's going to have a great children's ministry and she's going to be effective and then they got to me and they smelled the weed on me uh, they see that I was halfway there and instead of prophesying to me they'd be like save him Lord save him save him like help him Jesus deliver him yeah because nobody loves the least of these but Jesus sees in the least of these Something that they can't see in themselves. And God, then based on what he sees, does not judge you based on where you are. 
He judges you based on where he's called you to be. That's why when Gideon was hiding from the Philistines, threshing wheat in his father's wine press like a coward, he didn't call Gideon a coward. Coward was where he was, but mighty man of valor was where he was called to be. And is there anybody here that can praise God because he didn't call you based on the mistakes of your past, the inconsistencies of your present, but he called you based on your future. So we see God's love for the lost. But then the Pharisees begin to grumble and complain. And they're grumbling and they're complaining because they felt that the sinners were unworthy to be in the presence of Jesus. Not realizing that their self-righteousness made them unworthy. Because self-righteousness is that part of your flesh that causes you to see the shortcomings in others while ignoring those same things within yourself. Yeah. Self-righteousness is that thing that will cause you to see the speck in your neighbor's eye and ignore the log, the beam pole, the two-by-four that's in the corner of your eye. Yeah, you'll be trying to pick sawdust out of other people's eye while you've got a two by four in your eye, a tree trunk in your eye, and you're trying to get dust out of other folks' eye. But Jesus says, how can you see clearly to get the sawdust out of your neighbor's eye when you've got a bean pole in your own eye? First, remove the pole out of your eye. Yeah, yeah. They're trying to keep people out of the presence of God when they themselves do not deserve to be in the presence of God. And if we're going to have homecoming, if the church is going to be a home for the hurting, if people are going to come back to God, then we have to understand that the church becomes home when its people develop the attitude that all are welcome because none of us deserve to be here. God, help me. Is there anybody here who can be honest with yourself and say you don't deserve to be in the presence of God? This is why I ask people, no matter how you feel about corporate worship you've got to check your attitude because you read the Bible if you actually read it you'll read about a God who used to kill people when they came in his presence and their attitude and their hearts were not right as a matter of fact we sing jingle bells around Christmas time but you have to understand that jingle bells to the Jews was not a positive connotation because the reason why they had jingle bells in Jewish culture is because when the priests went to serve before the Lord they had to tie bells to the bottom of their garment to let the other priests know that they were still alive. And the reason why they had to do that is because the presence of God was so pure and holy that he would not allow anyone to come into his presence with their hearts and their attitudes not right. You couldn't hold a grudge against your spouse and go into his presence. You couldn't be mad at the high priest and go into his presence. You could not want to tithe that Sunday and go into his presence. You couldn't say, these people are always calling me. Why well, I always got to be up there early? Why well, I always got to serve? Why well, I always got you couldn't do that and come into his presence. And if you did it and went into the Holy of Holies, you would be struck down dead. And when the people outside didn't hear the jingle bells jingling anymore, they knew that God had taken you out because of your nasty attitude and they had to drag you up out of there. But the goodness of God says, no longer will I kill you because your attitude is jacked up. But I'll let you come in here and I'll even let Brandon sing you happy. I'll even let the preacher encourage you until you get off that attitude and get up in your feet. Is there anybody here that can 
pause there and say my attitude is jacked up but the Lord's been kind to me he's been merciful to me I've had a flipping attitude about church I was mad and said they ain't singing like I want them to sing he ain't preaching like I want to preach they ain't doing like I want to do and I forgot that I'm not a customer at Winn-Dixie but I'm a servant of the house of the Lord and it's not about me I'm lucky to even be in his presence I don't gotta come to church I get to come to church They're, they're, they're criticizing, hear me, they're, they're criticizing uh, because Jesus is showing his love for lost people. Yeah. And uh, the thing I love about Jesus is he is unfazed by the criticism of the people who can't understand his love. As a matter of fact, we should shout because God does not give his love because people like us. But he loves us in spite of popular opinion. Okay. Uh, you love your job. And you're grateful to your job because you get a check from your job. But before your job could give you that check, they had to do a check on you. That's why on every application, they ask you to include references. Because if your references are bad, it will decrease the likelihood that you get that job. Because your employer or your prospective employer does not know you. They base their opinion of you off of the opinion of other people. Which is a really messed up way to do things. I, I would think that if you really want to get to know me, I might not like that person you asking about me. I might have done them wrong years ago and they held a grudge and didn't tell me about it. That's why their name's still on my resume as a reference, because they didn't tell me. They was mad at me. But you should at least get to know me for myself, I feel. But your job says, no, I'm not going to get to know you for our, we're not going to get to know you for ourselves. We're going to judge you based on your references. But God says, when I get ready to bless you, when I get ready to promote you, when I get ready to elevate you, when I get ready to anoint you, when I get ready to lift you up, I don't do that based on references. God help me. Yeah. Uh, God does not ask your enemies what they think about you before he loves you. But he loves you in spite of you. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, Paul in Romans says, God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners. Not when we learned all the Bible verses we needed to know. Not when our church attendance was perfect. Not when we spoke in tongues like the other people in the church. Not when we got our praise dance together after practicing it in the mirror for a few months. Not, not when that happens. God says while you were still sinning. He loved you. And you got to be glad that the Lord is willing to upset a Pharisee to get you back home. God help me. Oh, God, we're going to find out in this next season of the church because I believe, I'm not just saying this uh, because I'm a pastor, but I honestly believe that the church is going to come back from this better than before, uh, not because of anything in us, but because the church is the church. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God help me. And God says my church, God help me, is still going to advance. It's still going to move forward. It's still going to multiply. But the truth of the matter is we're going to find out who the real church is by how they receive the people that God is sending to take up these empty seats. 
because so many pastors are praying for their old tithers to come back, for their old members to come back, for their old leaders to come back, for their old supporters to come back. But God says, behold, I do a new thing in you. And behold, it springs forth. Do you not see it? God says, I'm sending new people, people who have never been to church before, people who don't understand your title, people who don't understand the culture, people that you actually have to disciple. They don't know how to say hallelujah at the right time. They don't know how to do a cute little dance when the shout music starts. They don't know all the cliches, but they love God and they're here for God and they're going to serve God and they're going to be committed to God and they realize after God brought them through a pandemic and an economic crisis and mental health issues and domestic violence and cancer and criticism, God says, I'm bringing those people and if they're hungry for me, you got to receive them. But this text makes us ask the question, are we the Pharisees? Yeah, are, are, we, are we the Pharisees that refuse to receive who Jesus is receiving? Yeah. And so, in response to their grumbling and their complaining, the Bible says that Jesus decides to fix them by telling them a story. And he tells them a story of a man who's working as a shepherd. And while keeping the sheep, one of the sheep wander off. And Jesus says that instead of waiting for this sheep to find its way home, that this man in the story, this shepherd, leaves the 99 in the safety of the open pasture and goes after the sheep that was lost. And he says in the same way. God does not wait for his lost sheep. To find their way back to the sheepfold. But he goes after lost sheep. He is the God. Who cannot wait. And the question then is. If God does not wait for me to find him. When I've wandered off. Then what does he do? Well first of all. He seeks our salvation. Everyone say seeks. Yeah, he seeks our salvation. Verse number four says, And what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, does not, and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. He seeks our salvation. And the beauty of our God is, first of all, he does not make me find my way home even though it's my fault I'm lost. He did not lose the sheep. The sheep wandered off. Why does Jesus use the sheep in the parable? Because sheep, by their nature, have a tendency to wander. Sheep, because of their physiological makeup, have a poor sense of direction. They have poor eyesight. As a matter of fact, a sheep's greatest defense is its sense of smell. I'll come back to that. Uh, its greatest defense is its sense of smell. It can't see a predator from afar off. It is not fast enough to outrun a predator. And it has a poor sense of direction. So it's walking around looking to graze, looking for food. And while it's looking for food, it often wanders off. And I'm glad that God's not like us. Uh, I'll even say like me. 
Uh, because when people wander off, when folk walk away, and you know they ain't got no business going, it is our pride that does not allow us to go after them. Because we know we didn't do anything wrong, and since they left, we're going to let them be gone. Yeah, gone and be gone. Be lost. I'm not coming to find you. You found your way away. You can find your way back. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. It's your fault. But aren't you glad that God isn't like me and like us? That even when we're lost, God does not make us find our way back. But he comes and pursues us because he said it's not, your, it's not my fault, but it, you're my responsibility. And I'm grateful that God takes responsibility even over the things that I've done that are not his fault. Even over the things I try to blame God for that he knows he's not responsible for. That he knows he didn't do. Because sometimes we try to blame God for our poor decisions because we make poor decisions in God's name without God's instructions. Yeah, you can say you did something for God, but the only thing you can do for God is what God asked you to do for him. You are not intelligent enough to suggest something to God to do for him. The only thing you can offer God is obedience. Yeah. You are not creative enough to suggest, oh, maybe I should do this for God. David su suggested that he build God a temple, but the only reason he suggested it is because God had declared to the Exodus uh, Jews that he wanted a house permanently for himself. So it was not an original idea for David. David just said, you know what, all these people before me hadn't tried it, I'm going to try it. But he still did not make a suggestion to God that God hadn't already put in the earth. Because the only thing you can do for God is something that he's already told you to do. Oh, by the way, I, I don't want to hurt any prophet's feelings, but the only thing you can say for God is what God has already said. That's why sometimes, and I, I am prophetic, I am charismatic, I believe in all the gifts, I speak in tongues, might speak in some today, but the truth of the matter is simply this, the only thing that you can say for God is what God has already said. And sometimes we have to get out of the habit of telling people what God is saying out there in the ether and tell them what God has said and let them use what God has said to figure out what God is saying. That was for free, that wasn't in my notes, the, he, he seeks our salvation even though our lostness is not his fault. It, it's our fault because our sinful nature causes us to wander away from the will of God. But then God affirms, or I'm sorry, God is relentless in his search for the sheep. Because the text says he searches for the sheep how long until he finds it. He searches until he finds it. Yeah. Yeah. And God affirms the worth of each person by pursuing each one as if they're the only one. Yeah. Uh, God pursues each one as if they were the only one. And the truth is, he left the 99, not because the 99 weren't important, but because the one was just important to him as the 99. Yeah. God is paradoxical in the fact that he tells the one to not regard yourself as more important than the 99. But then he tells the 99, don't get so high up on your group that you forget about the one. So God tells the one person that you're not more important than you really are. But then he tells the 99 that the one is just as important as they are. So God says, look, I've got to leave the 99 and go after the one. And some of us need to be excited because he is relentless in searching for us because we're important to him. 
God seeks our salvation, number one, because of the value of the sheep. Lost people matter to God. But then, God relentlessly seeks our salvation, not just because of the value of the sheep, but he seeks it because of the reputation of the shepherd. Yeah, the reputation of the shepherd. His name is on the line. Uh, he uses this analogy of a shepherd uh, looking for a sheep because he understands that in that day they did not have business cards or flyers or publications for you to be able to increase your marketability and get a better job. Uh, the only way that you could get a better job was based on your reputation. And if you developed a reputation as a shepherd for losing sheep, you wasn't going to find a job as a shepherd. So the shepherd, when a sheep is lost, has to go find the sheep in order to secure his reputation. And that's the same way God feels about you and I. He's not going to allow one of his children to go lost because of his reputation. He says, God, you've given these to me, and you won't allow any of them to be plucked out of my hand. And if God started losing sheep, we'd lose confidence in God. So God says, look, even though you've wandered, I can't leave you lost because my name is on the line. He seeks our salvation. But not only does he seek our salvation, I'm almost finished. Not only does he seek our salvation, but the text teaches us that he secures our salvation. Yeah. Verse 5, I'm in the Bible. He says, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Rejoicing. When he has found it, he lays it. On his shoulders. He secures our salvation. How does he secure our salvation? Well, first of all, he secures the salvation by our salvation by retrieving the sheep. The shepherd retrieves the sheep. He found it. Beginning of verse 5, that's simple exegesis. When he has found it, he retrieves the sheep. He goes after the sheep. But this is interesting. When you study the habits of of first century shepherds in that area of the world, not only does he retrieve the sheep, but after he retrieves the sheep, Brandon, he restricts the sheep. Yeah, he, he restricts the sheep. How many of you have seen that painting of Jesus, the good shepherd, carrying the lamb on his shoulders? Did you ever stop to wonder how the lamb got there? Because if he walked away, why would he need to be carried back? Well, I thought, because, you know, I, I, I thought I was pretty clever as a youngster. I always thought that the reason why the shepherd had to carry the sheep back, because in his wandering, the sheep got injured while wandering. Because, you know, it's dangerous to wander away. And because sheep have a poor sense of direction, I figured maybe the sheep fell in a hole. And when he fell in the hole, he hurt his leg. And because he hurt his leg, the shepherd loved him and picked him up. And put him on his shoulders. Because even when you wander off and get hurt, he'll pick you up and lay you on his shoulders. And if I was an irresponsible preacher, I'd preach it like that. I'd say, even when you wandered off and gotten hurt in your wandering, he'll pick you up and put you on his shoulders and carry you back home. Life might have hurt you to the degree that you're not able to walk on your own. But you got a good shepherd that will lift you up and put you on his shoulders. And that's good preaching, but it's poor exegesis. Because when you study the habits of first century shepherds, you understand that the sheep was not injured by its wandering, but he was injured by the shepherd. 
David said it this way, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. But the Hebrew language is interesting because that word comfort actually means to afflict. So when a shepherd finds a lost sheep, he takes the end of that rod and he hits the knee joint on the back leg of the sheep and breaks its leg at the knee joint so that the sheep is no longer able to walk and wander away. And what he does is, God help me, he takes the sheep after breaking his leg and puts him on his shoulders to restrict his movement. God help me. And some of you don't realize what process of deliverance you're in. You think you're at the return home phase, but really you're walking around here limping because you're in the restriction phase. God help me. You're wondering why that door isn't opening, why God has not moved you, why it seems like you're arrested in your development, why it seems like you're paralyzed in your progress. It is because you have a shepherd that's wise enough to know that if I leave you mobile, you'll make a mistake that you can't recover from. But I've got to break you, God help me here, so that you won't make a move that you'll regret later. And is there anybody here who's glad that there were seasons of your life where the Lord restricted you. You knew you were more gifted than you should, than, than you were getting the credit for. You knew you had more skills, more gifting in you, more anointing in you, but God wouldn't let you move. Wouldn't nobody see you. Nobody would like your post. No one would get on your lives. Nobody would call you for advice. It's because God says if I give you mobility, you don't know how to manage your mobility and you'll mess something up. So I've got to break your leg so that you won't make a move you'll regret. He restricts the sheep. But not only does he restrict the sheep after he's retrieved the sheep, but after he retrieves and restricts the sheep, he restores the sheep. Because the Bible says that he lays the sheep on his shoulders. He, he's not just carrying the sheep back home. But the first century shepherd's custom was after he broke the sheep's leg, he would lay the sheep on his shoulder. And literally keep the sheep there until its leg was healed enough for him to walk again. But in order for him to prevent him from wandering after he's walked or after he's been broken and healed, the shepherd lays him on his shoulders. Oh, I told you before that a sheep's greatest defense was his sense of smell. While the sheep is laying on the shoulders of the shepherd, it is then immersed in the scent of the shepherd. And after it's laid on the shoulders and at the bedside of that shepherd for the weeks that it takes his leg to heal, the sheep's desire changes because all it smelled is the shepherd. And so when it can walk, it never wanders again because the shepherd healed him and nursed him back to health and so now the sheep's desire is no longer to wander God help me but it's to stay with the shepherd God help me and is there anybody here that can testify that God broke you but he also bound up your wounds he healed you he loved you back to wholeness he put you back together again and after he put you back together again his scent was in your nostrils God help me his scent was on your mind and all you wanted was to be in the presence of God. Okay, y'all don't get it. Uh, I love dogs. My favorite breed of dog 
is a, a pit bull. And, and the reason why I love pit bulls is because they're smart and they're loyal. Uh, they're not aggressive unless you make them that way. They're like people. If you abuse them enough, they'll bite back eventually. And then when they're hurt and they've been abused, they don't care who they bite. Some of you are like pit bulls in your life because you've been hurt so much that now when you snap, you don't care who you snap on. And instead of blaming it on your abuser, you need to get healed so that you won't mess up stuff that ain't supposed to be messed up by your jacked up attitude. But anyway, I like pit bulls. And the reason I like pit bulls is because they're smart and they're loyal. And I had a fraternity brother that raised pit bulls. And he, when I got my first one, told me, he said, put a shirt on, go to the gym in that shirt, wear that shirt all day. And then when you get home, before you bring the dog home, put that shirt in the dog's crate. I said, now that's stupid. Why would I take a perfectly good t-shirt that I've worn, I could wash it and wear it again. Why wouldn't I just put it, a blanket in there? He said, no, take a shirt that you've worn. Work out in it. Sweat in it real good. Wear it all day and then put it in the dog's crate. And so I did that. Brought the dog home, put the dog in the crate. And I did it that way for the first month of the dog's life. After that, I took the shirt out of the crate as I was instructed. But for some reason... When the dog was a puppy, I had to call him, I had to go get him, uh, he didn't recognize his name. But after I took that shirt out of the crate, something interesting happened. Everywhere I went, the dog went. I didn't have to call the dog. If I walked to the front door, the dog would be right behind me. If I walked to my room, the dog was in my room. And then I found the dog, I, I started keeping him, he was housebroken, so I started keeping him out of the crate. And then I found the dog one night had pulled over my hamper and was laying not on top of, but next to a pile of my dirty clothes. And I asked my friend, but I said, man, why is the dog doing it? It's weird. He said, it's because your dog memorizes you by your scent. It is your scent that makes the dog comfortable. And in order for the dog to feel safe, they want to constantly be around the thing that's in their nose. And God said the reason why the sheep never wanders is because I love them so much and I, I've cared for them so much that they don't even want to wander. They just want to be where I am. He lays them on his shoulder. So uh, when he secures our salvation, hear me, I'm almost finished, I promise. The shepherd retrieves the sheep. The shepherd restricts the sheep. The shepherd restores the sheep. But then after that, the shepherd returns the sheep. He brings the sheep back to the fold. God help me. Yeah. And, 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 and here is the thing. Uh, he brings him home rejoicing. Now this messed me up. Let me, let me, I just want to make sure that I'm not tripping. The sheep's leg is broken, but the shepherd is rejoicing. That would make me mad if I'm said sheep, mama, he done broke my leg. Why is he rejoicing? But he's rejoicing because he understands that the breaking he induced was not for your detriment, but it was for your development. And some of us need to learn how to shout while we're broken. Because God broke us not to harm us, but to bless us. God help me. And that's why the shepherd is rejoicing when he returns the sheep. 
Because he understands that the breaking was for your good. God, help me. And that's a word for somebody in the house today. What you went through was not for your breaking. It was for your benefit. God, help me. Might have caused you to be broken, but it wasn't so that you could stay broken. It was so he could make you better. And after you've gone through the storm and rain, is there anybody here who can testify I'm better now? Because he broke me. I got to quit. So God does not wait. He seeks our salvation. Everyone say seeks. But then he secures our salvation. Everyone says, say he secures. But not only does he seek and secure our salvation, but thirdly, and I'm through, he celebrates our salvation. Look at what the text says, verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep which was lost. Yeah. He celebrates because the lost sheep is back home. I want to help you. Um, this is a season, uh, and I've tried my best pastorally to get better about this. Um, because, uh, may I be transparent for a moment? Um, it's easy for you all as parishioners to say what you think about people because it's just your opinion. But when a senior leader, a pastor, a bishop gives their opinion about a person, that becomes culture. Yeah. So if you feel like a person left and it was jacked up how they left, the pastor, and this is why you need to pray for your leaders, we got to mask it. We got to say, it's okay, love on them anyway. Oh, they were dealing with something. They'll be back one day. We got to say that so that when they do come back, no matter how we feel about it, you'll be able to receive them. Uh, but it's almost like uh, I tell preachers, don't vent to your wife too much about your church because she loves you. She don't love them. And eventually she'll start resenting them if you complain about them too much. Right. So 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 in church, uh, as leaders, we have to be careful what we say about people who've departed, because eventually they're going to come back. And if you've created a culture that is incorrect, when you come back, when they come back, there will be speculation and interrogation. But God says when lost sheep come back, it's not the time for speculation and interrogation. It's time for celebration. Doesn't matter why they left. Doesn't even matter why they came back. When lost sheep find their way home, it's not time for you to be like, where you been? Why you been gone? You know Bishop been asking about you. Where your tithe been at? You know you used to work on the door. Why you ain't singing no more? What happened to you? Where you? No, no, no. When they come back, all they need is celebration, not interrogation, not speculation. Because when they come home, that's an opportunity for God to do a work in their lives. So he celebrates. And everybody. He calls his neighbors together because he's trying to paint for us the reality that when lost sheep come home, this is not a siloed celebration. This is not just some people should celebrate. But he says everybody should celebrate. The lost sheep should celebrate because today I am the one. God help me. Yeah, if you're a lost sheep, today you should celebrate. Because you're the one that he left the 99 for. God help me. Yeah. If you're lost today and you don't know where you are spiritually and, and you've been looking for your life to change, the word of the Lord to you today is that he's still seeking sheep. God help me. And, and, and he's looking for you to bring you back home. And, and somebody in here ought to shout because he found you. God help me. Yeah. Uh, he, you should shout. 
Because he found you. Oh, God. Some of us tell the lie and, and perpetuate the theological misnomer that we found God. But you can't find something that ain't lost. I once was lost. God, help me. Oh, God. But now... I'm found. And if, if you're a lost sheep, the lost sheep should celebrate because today I am the one. But if you're in here and you're a little bit sadiddy, you're a little bit what my grandmother would call such and much. Yeah. Yeah. And you say, I'm not the one. Bishop, I'm actually a part of the 99. I, I can't shout. Because I'm the one. Because I've been in the way a long time. I've been running for Jesus a long time. And I'm not tired yet. Bishop, I can't shout because I'm the one. Because I've been coming to church. As soon as the church started having in-person worship, Bishop, I was back in the building. When, when the vaccine came out, I got the vaccine. I've been vaccinated. I'm in the building, got my mask on. I'm socially distancing, but I did not forsake the assembly. I've been here. Yeah. If that's you, and you feel like you can't shout over being the one, the 99 should celebrate. Because every sheep that is a part of the 99 today was a lost sheep at some point yesterday. God help me. You're in the 99 today. God help me. Because it might be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. At some point you were lost. And he came looking for you. God help me. So the lost sheep. God help me. Should celebrate because he found you. God help me. And the found sheep should celebrate. God help me. Because he found you. God help me. But not only should the found sheep celebrate because they've been found. God help me. You should celebrate because him going after the one proves that he's still got room for more sheep. God help me. So you might not be the one that's lost now. But you're praying for a lost person. God help me. And if he's still leaving to go get the 99, you should shout because he's still seeking. God help me. Oh, God, but not only is him seeking the one proof that he still has room for one more, but it's also proof that if I in my sheepness wander off again, God help me, he's still able to bring me back one more time. God help me. And I don't know who I'm preaching to, but is there anybody here that's grateful that you serve a God that when you're lost, he has the ability to come back and get you one more time. God help me. He'll find you again. God help me. And I don't know who I'm preaching to in the building, but there's somebody in here that needs to rejoice like heaven because the Bible says there is more joy in heaven over one person who repents. God help me. Than over 99 who need no repentance. God help me. Let me help you exegetically unpack this pregnant Greek text. I want to help you understand it here. When he says who need no repentance, that is not a reality. That is a fact. It is interpreted in the Greek as someone who believes they need no repentance. Because even if you get to the place where you think you need no repentance, you need to repent from that thought and understand that all have sinned. 
and fallen short of the glory of God. So even in your, even in your professed perfection, you need to repent. But Jesus is saying that in heaven, I get more joy out of one person that says, I'm jacked up, but I came to Jesus. God help me. Just as I was. I was weary, wounded, and sad. And I found in him, God, I feel like preaching like I'm looking for a church, a resting place. And he has made me glad. Is there anybody here who's glad oh, that he searched for you? God, help me. And heaven rejoiced when you came back. But if heaven rejoiced over your trifling self, then it's going to rejoice over that wino that you counted out, over that drunken man, over that promiscuous man or promiscuous woman, over that single parent that you're judging all the time. Heaven's rejoicing over who you're ridiculing. So learn how to keep your mouth off of folk and join in with the angels and say I'm saved and I'm glad I'm saved but I'm also glad you're saved and I don't know who I'm preaching to but we live in a perverse and corrupt generation that likes to shout over all the wrong stuff I know I'm sounding like a holiness preacher I promise y'all I'm Baptist but it has to be said we live in a perverse generation that wants to shout over cars and clothes and money they want to shout over new stuff but is there anybody here here who can shout over the fact that you're saved. Oh God, come on with me and have church now. The old saints used to say, I'm saved by his power divine. I'm saved to new life sublime. Life now is sweet and my joy, my joy is complete. Come on, Justin. For I'm saved. I'm saved. I'm saved. Is there anybody here in the building today who can testify that I'm saved? And the reason I'm saved is not because I got myself together but I'm saved because when I was lost the Lord came looking for me look at somebody and say I was lost but the Lord came looking for me and I don't know how you feel about it but when I think of the goodness of Jesus and all he's done he's done for me my soul cries out hallelujah I thank God not for giving me a new car not for giving me a new house not for giving me a new job but I thank the Lord for saving me he building today who can testify that I'm saved because I got a good shepherd that came for me is there anybody here that can say I'm the one that he came for I'm the one that he went searching for he came in the club to bring me home he came in a liquor store to bring me home he came in that hotel room to bring me home in the back seat of that car he came to bring me home and is there anybody here who can testify he brought me back I didn't want to come back I was comfortable in my sin 
but he brought me back home. Is there anybody here who can testify? I, I serve a God that's going to bring me back. Is there anybody here that can say that's my testimony? He came looking for me when I didn't have enough sense to look for him. He came looking for me when my sense of direction wouldn't let me find my way right back home. Is there anybody here that can say amazing grace? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a wretch like me. I, 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 I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Is there anybody here that can say that's my testimony? My grandmother used to say, amazing grace shall always be my song of prayer. For it was grace that bought my, my liberty. I do not know just how he came to love me so, but he looked beyond. He looked beyond. He looked beyond all of my faults and saw my need. So what will you do now, Reverend? I shall forever lift my eyes to Calvary. Why are you looking towards Calvary? I told y'all I was Baptist. I looked to Calvary because one Friday he died. Do you know he died? I said he died one Friday evening. From the sixth to the ninth hour, they whipped him all night long. They hung him high. They stretched him wide. He dropped his head and then he died. But is there anybody here who can testify that that's not how the story ends? Three days later, I said three days later, three days later, I got to say it like my daddy would say. He wouldn't say three days later, but he said early Sunday morning. I'm sorry, I got to say that right. Candace, my voice wasn't right yet. I couldn't say it right. My dad said early, early. on a Sunday morning. He got up from the grave with not just a little bit of power, not just some of the power, not just a piece of the power, but with all, 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 all power in his hand. Is there anybody here who believes that I'm looking to Calvary because he saved my soul and I shall forever lift my eyes to Calvary to view the cross where Jesus died for me. How marvelous, how marvelous, how marvelous the grace to catch my falling soul. He looked beyond every one of my faults and saw my needs. Is there anybody here who loves the cross, who can testify on a hill far away? Stunning on a rugged cross. It was the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest 
and best for world of poor sinners was slain is there anybody here who believes in it now but if anyone should ever write my life story for whatever reason there may be between the pages of grace and glory you will look and you will see that Jesus is the best thing that ever happened to me yeah yeah you're the best thing that ever happened to me. He left the 99 to save a wretch like me. And if that's you today, can a young preacher ask you one question today? Ain't it all right? I said, Ain't it all right? If you know it's all right, if you are the one that he left the 99 for, if you that he walked away from the group if you were the one that he searched for till he found you till he wrapped his arms around you if that's you today open up your mouth and say yeah say yeah open up your mouth and say yeah say yeah say yeah 